0: The sun,
1: here comes the
0: sun, and I say it's alright.
2: This is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 174 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is five basic steps for an effective sanctions compliance program. Hello, everyone. I hope you're doing well, getting ready for the holiday season here. Uh, we're getting ready to go on break uh, ourselves uh, after this week. And I uh, thought I'd come back and talk a little bit about uh, sanctions compliance, and uh, Just uh, an important objective for any compliance program is to include trade sanctions if you have international business. Anyway, before we get started, let's hear from our sponsor, Blue Umbrella.
1: How are you managing your third-party compliance program? Is your technology vastly assisting you or getting in your way? Blue Umbrella, in concert with some of the largest, most sophisticated compliance programs in the world, has devised a user-friendly, customizable platform that automates tasks and seamlessly integrates with adjacent enterprise systems. Blue Umbrella has employed advanced technology, along with a healthy dose of common sense, to make sure that compliance professionals using status are able to focus on managing issues that arise, monitoring the health of their program, and proactively anticipating risks as a business partner. Curious? Contact us at blueumbrella.com for a quick demo.
2: Well, I hate to sound like a broken record, uh, but uh, I wanted to talk again about the importance of sanctions compliance under OFAC. For whatever reason, it, uh, the response I, I sort of see out there is this sanctions compliance guidance, which was issued in May of 2019, uh, is an important document. And uh, a reminder to everybody on sanctions compliance and the importance of implementing uh, an effective program. Uh, The performance that I see out there, at least, you know, this is not scientific, but anecdotal, is uh, obviously uh, people are not, um, shall I say it, taking the guidance and really implementing a robust program. Uh, anything, and, and there are basically five requirements that are just essential to start this process. And I wanted to go over those and sort of provide a little bit of an elaboration as to why I picked these five and also to elaborate on each of the five so that people can uh, sort of take a look at these and uh, assess where they are in this process. Now, obviously, if you don't have a very significant international business, uh, it, doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't raise significant issues for you. But even if you go through third parties who themselves are domestically located but nonetheless sell internationally, uh, you may have issues as well. So when I use the term SCP, I mean sanctions compliance program. Uh, and I mean much more than just having an employee screen a customer before a shipment is sent out from the warehouse. Uh, too many companies you know, rely on just a simple screening uh, in in most cases and are behind the eight ball when it comes to sanctions compliance. So the OFAC's uh, guidance in May 2019, and if you follow my writing and speaking, it's really an extraordinary document. It includes a number of good uh, suggestions, ideas, uh, and I think the companies that ignore the guidance do so at their peril. Uh, If there's one area that companies need to address and do so now, it is sanctions compliance. Uh, If you have not implemented a sanctions compliance program or you are still relying on just a basic screening protocol, uh, your company is definitely at risk for a sanctions compliance uh, investigation. Uh, There's nothing worse than going into a voluntary disclosure process where you end up Uh, having to say, look, we don't have a program, we had a very immature program, and we're upgrading it and remediating it now as a response uh, to the violations that occur. And the the stakes surrounding this have multiplied several times. And it's not just a situation where you're going to get an OFAC enforcement action. Uh, and it's a civil penalty, and it's a pay-as-you-go, and it's only going to be if you know twenty thousand, forty thousand, whatever amount of money that seems minimal to the company, uh, in a, in comparison to uh, implementing an effective compliance program. The Justice Department has entered this area in a more robust era, uh, way recently in the last couple of years bringing criminal cases, particularly when they relate to the Iran sanctions program and the North Korea sanctions program. And they last year put out some additional guidance on their own voluntary disclosure procedures, and what they required is, and what they encourage is that whereas there's evidence that the violation may have been willful, meaning that somebody knew that it was illegal, not that they knew why and how and what specific provision was illegal, but that they knew, they acted with uh, intent that it was, knowing that it was illegal, that There is criminal liability in that situation, and they've encouraged companies to undertake a voluntary disclosure for that reason, uh, to sort of wipe clean that uh, situation. So usually in the past, we had criminal referrals that would occur from OFAC. In other words, OFAC would start an investigation, it'll be a civil enforcement matter, and then they would refer it over. Uh, Now what we're seeing is that companies have to assess whether or not there's a potential criminal case. And if there is, then they probably should uh, do a voluntary disclosure with the the Justice Department. Now, in most cases, they will get a a declination uh, from the Justice Department unless there's really strong evidence with regard to Uh, the uh, requisite intent, and then that'll only raise the penalties and raise the possibility of a corporate prosecution or uh, an individual prosecution. And that can get very complicated very quickly in terms of how you handle that situation and then the costs that are involved. So, Uh, OFAC has a robust and mature enforcement program, and over the last few years, they've successfully expanded its enforcement focus beyond the financial industry, uh, where they used to target banks for processing transactions, and now they target manufacturing service and other industries. I mean, we had, uh, in the last few years, think of Amazon, Apple, uh, all companies, Berkshire, Hathaway. I mean, you know, murderer's row in terms of companies, in uh, uh, publicity uh, being uh, the subject of OFAC enforcement actions. So uh, let's get started with sort of what I think the five basic measures are that should be implemented in a sanctions compliance program for a company to sort of focus on and get started in this area. The first is senior management and the adoption of a trade compliance policy. So senior management has to make a statement in support of their uh, OFAC compliance, and they have to do so by adopting a trade compliance policy. I would urge that you implement one that's separate from your code of conduct uh, and that the board of directors and the senior management adopt and release and approve a trade compliance policy that addresses not only sanctions compliance, but export controls, if relevant to your business, meaning do you have ITAR military items that are on uh, the the military uh, list of equipment, or dual use items that are under uh, Department of Commerce EAR or uh, you know the Export Administration Regulations or the commodity uh, list, the CCL items, uh, also even aside from the export controls, is whether or not you need uh, anti-boycott requirements, Uh, and you should include that in terms of there's a reporting policy. If there's a boycott request made uh, of any of your business people to boycott, let's say, Israel and not do business with them, then there's an anti-boycott requirement that you uh, notify and report that to uh, the Department of Justice. There's an office for that. So the trade policy also, besides the general compliance areas, has to reference screening and internal controls requirements uh, that are needed to identify and elevate any potential sanctions issues for further review. So it's not just a document that says, okay, we're going to comply with these requirements. Here they are. It should reference the due diligence process by which you onboard uh, vendors, suppliers, and customers and go from there. So that's the first area uh, that needs to be addressed in turn. the first of five that needs to be addressed with regard to your uh, sanctions compliance policy. The second is a risk assessment. And obviously a risk assessment is an important area to understand your risks and then to make sure that you uh, identify them with regard to your third parties and your customers. So OFAC had described in its guidance document a robust risk assessment requirement uh, as well, but they extended this requirement to include a company's supply chain. And the Elf Cosmetics case, if you've heard me talk about it, uh, which occurred uh, early in 2020, I believe, uh, or 2019, was a case that's very instructive because what happened in that case is E.L.F. Cosmetics was importing um, uh, supplies needed, uh, materials needed to make eyelashes, false eyelashes. And they had an enforcement action of nearly a million dollars in a penalty where they were sourcing the materials unknown to them through a Chinese supplier who unknown to them was obtaining the eyelashes from North Korea. And even though uh, Elf Cosmetics didn't know about it, uh, the fact that they had not audited or monitored their supply chain meant uh, that they were liable for uh, this uh, violation of the North Korea sanctions. So uh, what happened in this case now is that case has sort of been uh, adopted or included in the guidance. Uh, They didn't specifically cite it, but it's clear that now, there are the risk assessment has to include include not only all your counterparties and your customers but now you have to go through your supply chain and you have to look at where your materials are sourced from where your your vendors are obtaining materials kind of analogous to the conflict minerals case and are you dealing with prohibited entities or countries now that doesn't mean you have to take the whole supply chain and tear it apart Uh, You know, piece by piece across the whole world. To me, it has to be done in a focused way where your risks are. In other words, geographic factors are going to play a big role in that in terms of your supply chain liability. Uh, At some point, uh, your sources, let's say of materials, uh, if they're not in in geographic areas where they could be sourced from prohibited countries, then it's not uh, relevant for you to necessarily pull apart that particular supplier. Um, So uh, it has to be done on a risk basis, and your supply chain audit has to be done with mindful concerns as to what's a realistic prospect here of where we could deal with prohibited entities, but more importantly, where we could deal with uh, materials that come from prohibited countries. So, uh, and remember, the key here is that you do not have to specifically know. If it's a problem that's in your supply chain and you don't know about it, you're still liable for it. That's why supply chain audits or supply chain uh, assessments and risk assessment is part of the uh, overall process. Third is your screening technology and internal controls. While many companies uh, you know have subscribed to an open source intelligence screening, Technology or an export focused screening database, this is just the beginning of meeting the requirement for internal controls to identify, elevate, and resolve screening results. A company cannot assign the responsibility for this function to one person. In other words, by definition, you need to segregate the conflict, the potential conflicts here with your uh, splitting up the responsibilities for the screening, the review, and the approval. If, and we had a situation with one client where one person was responsible, they saw a red flag, they said, oh, I'll resolve it, and they resolved it, and then it turned out it was wrong. And in that case, the company uh, realized that they can't have one person just doing the screening, the research, and resolving uh, any red flags uh, that may come up during this process. And remember that OFAC has prescribed a number of requirements in this area. With respect to the screening technology or platform, a company has to document the reasons for, first, selecting the specific service. If this is conducted by an RFP, a company should preserve those documents. And second, a company has to calibrate its uh, service, in other words, put in risk factors and relevant risk-based ways for dividing or classifying certain uh, counterparties, customers, as well as uh, people in your supply chain or companies in your supply chain to match its risk profile. In other words, taking your risk profile and making sure that it's calibrated in the technology that you're using so that high-risk third parties are identified based on established factors. Now, many people use geographic location and annual revenue, which makes total sense. Finally, a company has to test its technology regularly to ensure that it's operating properly. Remember, Amazon, Apple, Cobham, Metallics, and other companies have suffered OFAC enforcement actions because of basic screening errors where the filters were set incorrectly, where the OFAC uh, screening service was not properly updated within the company. Uh, And that's the one thing that has to be uh, monitored because you are at risk. Uh, Companies that come in and say, okay, well, our our screening technology didn't work. We got an erroneous response. And OFAC's response is that's, sorry, that's that's on you. You've got to make sure that it works and you've got to make sure that it's accurate. So aside from the screening technology, though, your internal controls have to identify and describe third-party due diligence procedures and independent research requirements. In other words, screening alone is not sufficient. There has to be an independent research uh, requirement uh, that's satisfied with regard to each screening result. In other words, you can't just rely upon the screening result. There also have to be procedures, and as part of your internal controls that I mentioned, an elevation of potential red flags, a formal review and approval process, and documentation, as well as following up and monitoring activities and oversight requirements and audits. All of that goes into the internal controls. In other words, how are our internal controls working uh, and are they? Uh, properly working with regard and being described and then followed with regard to screening and onboarding. Next uh, is, and it's a pretty simple requirement, but there's an annual training requirement. Annual training is required. And I need to say that over and over. Because right now, sexual harassment is required by various states that companies uh, conduct sexual harassment training on an annual basis. Many companies act as if they're unaware of a specific uh, guidance requirement that said that sanctions compliance training for responsible persons must be conducted annually. And it has to be added to the list of required training programs, including sexual harassment, obviously, code of conduct, and other relevant topics. But my point here is that it doesn't mean you have to train the entire company, but it means those persons who are going to come into contact with OFAC compliance issues, whether or not to conduct various transactions, where before I ship the transaction, before I sell the the items, um, before I enter into a contract... If I'm in that responsible person list, I need to be trained on an annual basis. And finally, our periodic audits and monitoring. So to ensure sanctions compliance, companies have to adopt an auditing and monitoring program. It's not enough to rely on a screening technology to alert someone of new adverse media with regard to a vendor supplier or a customer, There has to be a substantive monitoring program to focus on high-risk activities, including third-party distributors, which may involve verification of end-use shipments to lawful customers and country. Uh, An annual audit program of sanctions compliance program has to include testing and verification of screening, due diligence, beneficial ownership, and geographic uh, locations. Going back to that third-party distributor, if, for example, I'm selling washing machines and I'm selling those washing machines to a location in Dubai uh, to a distributor or a trading company, I better make sure that that trading company is not reselling that material into Iran, which is very common from Dubai because of the proximity and the business dealings that they have. Any distributor in that area would be a high-risk distributor, and I need to get verification up with regard to the end-use shipments as to who they went to and what countries. Now, that can be difficult because you may not have the leverage. You may not have the ability to do that, but you're going to have to at least try to sanction, I mean, sample those types of transactions, and you're going to have to try to make sure that you get to some way to at least document your attempts to verify these uh, transactions and where the products ultimately ended up. Now, these are just basic requirements. There's much more that's needed for an effective sanctions compliance program, but companies have to get started on this important compliance area. The Justice Department and OFAC, particularly with the new Biden administration coming into power, are sure to increase their enforcement efforts. We're going to see probably more sanctions as time goes on, and companies need to prepare for this upcoming sort of aggressive enforcement environment. Well, that's uh, that's it for today. Uh, hope you're all staying safe, healthy, stay in touch. We'll be back next week
1: You can also follow our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can contact Michael Volkov at his email address, mvolkov at volkovlaw.com.